Welcome to this sustainable self-development hypertrophy zone, where it's all about sustainably hardcore ways to maximize muscle growth. We talk about everything that is related to muscle growth, training intensity, rep ranges, special training techniques, progression schemes, injury prevention, exercise selection. Take your pick before the hypertrophy zone picks you. Hey everyone and welcome to the first hypertrophy episode of the Sustainable Cell Development Podcast where we talk about sustainably hardcore ways to maximize muscle growth. I thought I might as well dedicate a subcategory of my podcast to these kinds of episodes because frankly they are a unique breed of sorts. I mean my podcast is dedicated to fitness for sure but it has more of a general personal development theme as well. Hence the name sustainable cell development and very nerdy questions about how to progress with different intensities and special training techniques in the gym and whether you should add weight to your lateral delt raises or you should increase reps doesn't necessarily fit the bill there. So I still want to dedicate full episodes to these, so hereby I'm presenting to you these hypertrophy episodes, and today you will be hearing the first one of them. In today's episode, I will be talking to Dr. Jeremy Lenecke, who is an assistant professor at the University of Mississippi and a researcher who has conducted and published research in the realms of strength and hypertrophy and has done a lot of fascinating work in the area of blood flow restriction training, which he became known for primarily. As of late, he also drew a lot of attention with him questioning the belief and adage that hypertrophy and muscle growth is directly causing strength gain, which goes against a lot of the core beliefs in the field and industry. So he's definitely a very interesting guy and in today's episode I have picked his brain on his research on blood flow restriction training which for those of you who don't know what that is you basically wrap a piece of cloth or knee wrap around your arms or thighs so thereby you basically prevent blood flow from leaving your limbs and you start doing your training that way and this accomplishes a lot of cool things one of which is a lot of pain and an unbelievable pump in your arms and thighs where the veins are just popping out in an insane fashion. And this makes it possible, for example, to use lighter weights with your training and still achieve the same training effect and muscle growth. So we really geeked out here on a number of cool concepts like what kinds of reps to use, how to progress in your training if you use a protocol like this, what's the heaviest or the lightest weights you could use to make this work, and lots of others. And in the end, we delved into this aforementioned controversial stance on the relationship between muscle growth and strength development. So lots of cool concepts here. You will enjoy it, I hope. And be sure to subscribe to the show on whatever platform you're watching this or listening to this. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Dr. Lenecke, how are you doing? And thank you so much for coming on. I'm doing well, man. How are you doing? And I appreciate the invite. Yeah, uh, going great. Like I just told you before we started the call, um, a lot of people went crazy that you were coming on and they asked a really 
good number of really good questions. So I'm excited that we will get the chance to to go through them. So um, the theme of what we are going to talk about today, I mean, you are yourself involved with a good number of interesting topics. It would be fair to say that what you became most known for initially on the internet was um, your work regarding blood, blood flow restriction training. I still have troubles with this word. So a good number of my audience, basically my entire audience will be very familiar with what that is. But uh, for people who may not be, would you just give a general outline of what blood flow restriction is and what the general mechanism behind that is? So blood flow restriction, essentially we're just taking a cuff or a wrap and we're placing it at the top of the arm or the top of the leg. Um, and uh, we restrict it just partially. So blood flow is going into the limb, but a lot of it's being slowed uh, on the way out of the limb. So it causes kind of a swelling effect inside the muscle. Um, and the reason why people would do this is it allows you to train uh, with much lower loads than you can than you would normally train with and still see muscle hypertrophy and a lot of the strength gain. Um, and how that works, we're not exactly sure. We think that, you know, maybe that, you know, since we're causing the pooling of blood, maybe that cell swelling effect, maybe that's beneficial. Um, we also think that maybe, you know, when you are contracting the muscle, you have the production of metabolites. Um, and when we're restricting blood flow, we're causing the pooling of those metabolites inside the limb. And that might be important for augmenting some of this, uh, muscle activation. Uh, so you're able to recruit some of these higher threshold motor neurons at very, very low loads. So I think it's a combination of maybe the cell swelling and, you know, some of this metabolic accumulation. Right. So um, I, I guess for, for people to to get um, kind of a, some good perspective on this, the, the model of hypertrophy, which is kind of currently um, accepted most generally, and there are some debates uh, over it, as of recent times, but it is um, mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and muscle damage. Would it be correct to say that this targets the metabolic stress component of this hypertrophy model specifically? Um, uh, I, I don't really, some of our thoughts are kind of changing on that. I, I, I don't think muscle damage belongs in the discussion at all, to be honest, um, with respect to muscle hypertrophy. Um, but I think that the metabolites themselves. For a long time, I think that we talked about them having anabolic uh, effects in and of themselves, meaning just pulling the metabolites themselves uh, is anabolic. And I'm starting to think that's probably not the case. I think it's probably the metabolites that are augmenting the mechanical uh, aspect of it. So I think the, me the mechanical and the metabolites, those two things are probably related. So I don't think, it is, I don't think there's anything special about just pulling those metabolites in and of themselves without further contraction. We will, we will get back on this very uh, shortly, but um, just just still kind of on the general theme of this entire thing, um, who would you say would benefit from blood flow restriction training the most? Um, would it be injured athletes or just people who don't want to, like for preventative measures, not overtaxing their joints with heavy loads or what would you say? Yeah, I think, um, I think the, the greatest... Uh, benefit to it or the greatest, uh, the, the most, uh, the people who have the greatest to gain from it would probably be in the rehabilitation center. Uh, so people who cannot lift heavy loads at all. Um, it's not to say that normal people can't see benefits from it. It's not to say that athletes can't see benefits from it. 
but it does seem like its greatest potential utility is in rehabilitation. Um, because the, some of those people may be contraindicated to lifting high loads or even low loads with high amounts of volume. So I think that maybe there is some utility uh, to it with rehabilitation. And a lot of that stems from there. there is some suggestion that just applying blood flow restriction by itself, uh, independent of any muscle contraction at all, may slow down some of that muscle loss that occurs during unloading. Um, now, there's not a lot of data on that, to, just to be honest, but there is some. So if that is true, then that has an enormous impact in the clinical setting where people may not be able to exercise um, and just applying the cuff might slow down some of that loss. Uh, but with that being said, <clears throat> there there is still some benefits uh, if people want to train it just uh, everyday people. Maybe they go into the gym, uh, maybe they're a little banged up, they can't lift with their uh, the, the program that they want to lift with. So maybe blood flow attrition is a way to do uh to lift a little bit lighter loads until they can get back on track, or maybe they just don't like to lift heavy, and this is another option. Um, you certainly don't have to use blood flow restriction to see quote-unquote optimal gains, but I do think it's a, perhaps a valuable tool to a normal person as well. Right. So uh, on that, actually, uh, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot, and I think a lot of people do, is just how effective is it? Like, is it the case that if you use this technique, then it's always going to be worse than if you were to use heavy training and but you know it's still better than nothing if you are injured or something or can it be actually just as effective so can it be a regular part of your training program year round yeah i think for muscle growth i think it's pretty evident that the muscle hypertrophy is pretty similar um to traditional exercise now i don't know why people would expect it to but, you know a lot of times people go yeah, but it's not better than high load exercise for muscle growth. And I, I don't know why you would ever expect it to be better. Yeah. Um, I think that when you maximize the gain, you maximize the gain. So I, I think that with muscle hypertrophy, if, um, it's almost always the same as what you get with high load exercise. Now, with strength, it really depends on how you're measuring strength. If you're doing a 1RM um, and you're comparing low load blood flow restriction uh, to high load uh, without blood flow restriction, uh, sometimes the strength gain with the 1RM is a little bit less. <clears throat> and that's explained by the principle of specificity. Um, and it's simply, if you have someone who's continuously lifting at 70 to 80% of their 1RM, whereas another group is lifting around 20 or 30% of the 1RM, and then you test on who can lift weights the best in the 1RM at 100% of your max, it stands to reason that the group that's practicing that task at the higher load is going to test a little bit better. Um, and, and that's seen quite a bit. When you test them in a, in a lift where neither one of them are practiced, like the MVC, isometric, isokinetic testing, usually it's pretty similar. Um, so uh, muscle hypertrophy, I think, is the same. Strength, it really depends on how you measure it. Um, but 1RM strength does increase with blood, with low load blood flow restriction exercise, but it's, it's, it's oftentimes a little bit less than what you see with just traditional high load exercise. So the, the message there would be if you're a power lifter and all you do is train with low loads, you're going to, um, because you've never practiced lifting close to your 1RM. So I think there's, 
utility for powerlifters that if all they do is low, low training, it's not a good situation for them. Right. So I was going to ask this later, but since uh, we are on the topic, I might as well uh, ask this, that I, I guess you become renowned for your stance on hypertrophy and strength correlation. And you, as far as I know, you proposed um, your theory, which says that it doesn't necessarily correlate as much as a lot of people would think. So how would you explain the increase in strength with low load BFR training? Yeah, good question. Um, so first and foremost, I do think that uh, oftentimes the change in muscle size and the change in strength is correlated. I don't think there's any question that it's often correlated, but sometimes it's a weak correlation. But we've got uh, what I think is some pretty good data that suggests that when you actually design a study to answer the question where you eliminate growth completely, um, that you, the strength is statistically equivalent. Not only is it not different, it's the same, despite the group not having muscle size at all. So I, I don't think there's any good direct evidence that the exercise-induced change uh, in muscle size contributes to the exercise-induced change in strength. I'm not, I'm not arguing that they're not <clears throat> correlated or they're not related, um, but I, I'm talking about the change with training, and I think that's what gets lost on a lot of people. But to get to your question about how does blood flow restriction increase strength if it's not driven by the exercise-induced change in muscle growth, um, that's, a, that's a, a question that I, I have no answer to. Um, I think two, two potential options would be um, maybe the nervous system, obviously, is a, would be the, the one to go to. But I, I think that uh, it would be a mistake to say that it's not muscle size, it must be the nervous system, because there could be things going on at the muscle uh, that that might be changing that don't result in a change in muscle size, if that makes sense. So to, just to be honest, I don't really have a good grasp on it because I think for the last 20 years or so, we've just assumed that the exercise-induced change in muscle size um, is driving the strength. And I just don't think that that was ever based on really good evidence. Right. So uh, ju just so that I understand, um, would your contention be that – because generally uh, the – what I, what I perceive to be the consensus here is that a bigger muscle, because a bigger cross-sectional area, is necessarily a stronger muscle as well. And would this be what you would um, kind of dispute? No, I think that when you have someone like, let's say, someone who's just a bigger individual, they, they have a bigger cross-sectional area just in general it, without training at all, right? Is that, does that result in a bigger... Uh, uh, Does that result in more strength? Probably. But the, the discussion that we're talking about is, the, is what I think people are actually interested in. We're not interested in what's explaining strength at baseline. We're, we're, try, we're interested in what explains the change in strength. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when, when adults start lifting weights, does the muscle change enough to meaningfully contribute to strength? That's the question. And um, I don't know that there's evidence that suggests that. And I think there's plenty of evidence to the contrary. Right, right. Okay, that's, uh, that, that's really fascinating. And uh, maybe, maybe you can get back on this at a different time. But uh, yeah, let, let's get back to, to occlusion training for a little bit. So um, obviously, usually the body parts that are studied uh, are the limbs, right? So um, what, what is the case with body parts that are not in, uh, occluded? So things like the pecs, Or the delts, because as far as I know, there are there is evidence that even the pecs get uh, some increased 
uh, muscle growth. Yeah, that's correct. Um, at least that's what we think. Now, there's not a, there's there's limited evidence on that. So that's what we would refer to as kind of indirect muscle growth from blood flow restriction, meaning that that muscle group is not directly under blood flow restriction. So what's explaining that change in, in the in the chest? Um, and, and first, like I said, there's a few studies that suggest that that's, that happens. Um, so how does that happen? Um, good question. Um, I think it could be the way I always describe it is perhaps, you know, you're fatiguing the triceps. So the triceps are under blood flow restriction um, and they do participate in a chest press exercise or the bench press. So maybe you're fatiguing uh, that muscle group and the chest is picking up the, the load. So it's having to work a little bit harder than it normally would at that low load. Um, that would be what I would hypothesize. Uh, but to say that we have a good grasp on that, I think would be uh, a lie, to be honest. But um, yeah, you're correct. There is some evidence that even muscles um, that aren't directly under blood flow restriction may still uh, benefit from blood flow restriction. Yeah. And, and, and it's very interesting because, you know, you would intuitively think that if the triceps get triceps gets eliminated before um, or pre prematurely during a bench press, for example, then it's just, well, it's kind of an unfortunate uh, occurrence that something that you didn't really target or didn't intend to target got eliminated. So this just means that you have less chance to overload the chest. But in this instance, it seems like that the pecs get more stimulus. So w I, I think I've heard someone hypothesize that maybe this is a case of more muscle activation and that's what causes the pecs to to grow in this instance. I don't know. What do you think about this? I just think that's that's. I, I think that would probably makes sense. Um, meaning that the the triceps cannot uh, are fatigued and they cannot participate as much uh, to moving the weight. So the chest uh, increases their activation to keep moving the weight. Um, I think that's what uh, they're describing, and I would uh, agree with that. Uh, I don't know if that's the if that's true, but it it does seem to be what makes sense. One one thing that is often touted by other people, and I would be curious on your take on it, is is there a limited time frame for when this is effective? So, because um, some people say that, well, you know, these kind kind of metabolite type techniques work for a while, and then they kind of lose their effectiveness. Uh, do you think there is something to this, or can you do this um, kind of technique indefinitely? I don't know why you. I don't know why it would. You, you wouldn't be able to use it indefinitely. Um, I do think that what you're describing is when people become adapted to something. Um, but I think that's just resistance exercise. So I think people have this idea that, um, and I think a lot of it is, is, is pushed by the fitness industry, um, is this idea that muscle adaptation is, is infinite. So that all we have to do is switch something and we can just keep getting things bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I just don't think that that makes any sense at all. So I think that um, would blood flow restrictions become less effective over time, <clears throat> less effective as, as with respect to increasing muscle size, um, maybe only because you've, you're reaching closer and closer and closer to your limit, if that makes sense. So I, I, I'm not saying that muscle growth can't continue it to increase over time, but I think that once you reach a point, the, the ability to change it's so small that I, I think that um, it, you could effectively almost say that it's, it's barely changing, if at all. 
Um, and I think that makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. I don't know why uh, that we would have evolved to just put on as much muscle mass as we possibly could. Yeah, I, I would agree. So, so basically, um, if someone wants to, you could just basically replace your biceps work or triceps work, triceps or biceps isolation work with blood flow restriction for the rest of your life, basically, if you want to. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you don't have to. Certainly, you can. You don't need blood flow restriction, but yeah, I think that would be a, an option. And I, but to answer your question, does it become less effective over time? If, if effectiveness is your ability to grow muscle, then I would say that's true of literally every form of training. Every form of training is less effective over time because you're getting closer and closer to your your limit. Yeah, so it's not specific to BFR training. I don't know that there's anything just inherently specific about. Uh, blood flow restriction, meaning uh, the mechanisms of, uh, of growth, I think, are um, all has to do with, especially with resistance exercises, augmenting activation. Now, I think that the, the ability to fatigue, that mechanism might be a little bit different than with high load exercise. But as far as how the muscle grows, I don't think it uses uh, some like mTOR4 or some uh, random pathway. I think it's all kind of similar. Let's let like one question that a lot of people wonder about is because I think the the protocol that you popularized with this is uh, a protocol where you do a 30 RM, so something that you can do 30 reps with, and you do that, and then you do a set of 15, and then two other sets of 15. Is is that correct, or how is it for the general uh, population? Yeah, I, I think that. Um, the reason why is that was what was was used uh, in a lot of these studies, um, and I think many of the listeners will go, "Well, that's a pretty crappy reason to do something." Um, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree, um, but I think the I think the reason why I think I, I I would still lean towards using these as goal repetitions is that a lot of times in the gym we're using knee wraps, so we don't really have a good feel for how much blood flow we're actually cutting off. So I use the workload as some kind of indication of blood flow, um, as a, as a very, very, very indirect marker of that. So, um, it's quite often that you're not going to get all those repetitions, but you should be getting pretty, pretty close. And if you're not getting close at all, then the load is probably a little too high or you have the wraps too tight. Now there's some days where you, you just might not even get close, but if that's consistently what you're doing, you might want to think about either changing the load or changing the tightness, but you know, in, in a lab setting, I almost feel like we, we've almost moved entirely to just doing sets to failure, to be honest, um, and for a variety of reasons. But for the general population, I think it, it can give you an idea of how much pressure is being applied. Um, and I think it kind of gives them a goal, a number of a goal to shoot for. So maybe they're feeling it and they're about to quit at maybe nine, but they know that they, they could squeeze out about six more. Um, whether or not that squeezing out that six more is even that important, I think would be another matter of debate. But um, I think the 30, 15, 15, 15 is just to, uh, a protocol that has been demonstrated to work consistently. Um, and it can kind of give you an idea of, of how much blood flow is being restricted when you don't know how much blood flow you're restricting, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, yeah. And so with that, um, would you say that it would be a viable pro pro or, or goal to shoot for to just simply do four or five sets to just failure, basically? Yeah, I mean, certainly. Um, I, I think train to failure uh, is probably the, 
is not a bad recommendation to do. I just think that sometimes, you know, people want, they need something to shoot for and that helps, you know, motivate them a little bit. But yeah, no, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing three to four sets to failure. Right. So now what do you think about um, someone, you know, an experienced bodybuilder who simply wants to use less load for his, uh, let's say, biceps training? So normally he would use, I don't know, 20 pound dumbbells to do 12 reps. So now he wants to do similarly 12 rep sets, but now he just wants to use a lighter load. So he uses blood flow restriction. Would that be just as effective with these kind of medium, more hypertrophy uh, type rep ranges? There comes a point where the load is a little bit too high. I mean, once you get to, I think a little bit beyond 50% of your, your one RM, I don't know that blood flow restriction is really adding a whole lot to it. Uh, but if he was, you know, using a lighter load and wanted to use blood flow restriction, yeah, he could, the, the individual could certainly do that. Absolutely. Right. So higher rep training seems to be a necessity to make this really uh, effective. Well, yeah. I mean, because I think that, again, there's uh, when you have a, like, when you train with a higher load, moderate to even higher load, you're getting blood flow restriction with the muscle contraction itself. Um, so, and I, and I think that you're getting so much activation with just the, the, even the first repetition when you, when you're training with this moderate to higher loads that you don't really need to augment the activation. It's already there. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so speaking of loads, how light do you think you can go? So 30% one RM is usually what we talk about. Can you go down to 20% or I don't know, 15%? Those kind of loads as well. Uh, have you been hanging out in our lab meetings or something? <laughs> no, I wish. That's a that's a question that we're 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 looking to answer because I think it's a very valuable one. Mostly because um, I think the question is what is what is blood flow restriction doing? You know, because if if you look at and we've done some of this work as well, but if you look at some of Stu Phillips stuff, thirty percent one RM without blood flow restriction um, that stimulates muscle growth, right? Yeah. Now, when you add blood flow restriction, you get at a uh, uh, a lower overall volume, so it doesn't take you as much work to get the same adaptation. But it suggests that at 30%, you're still getting uh, restriction of blood flow during the contraction for most people. So I think that um, I think that they would suggest, um, and and I, I think it's a reasonable suggestion that 30. If you just train at 30%, just go to failure. But I think there there comes a some point where you can't train to failure, uh, meaning that the load is so low that you don't you don't uh, restrict enough blood flow via the contraction, right? That maybe you do need to add some blood flow restriction to to even reach fatigue. So and I think if I mean we're going to investigate that in the fall. Um, that's some of my students' dissertations. Um, so yeah, I think that at very 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 low loads. Um, blood flow restriction might be actually necessary if you want to see some of this adaptation, meaning that you couldn't just train to failure because you wouldn't be able to reach failure, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think with rehabilitation or even um, that might actually be pretty important uh, because if you're training some, an older person or you're training someone in the clinic, you're training someone at a nursing home, you don't want RM test them, right? You're going to give them a very light weight and then you're going to have them lifted. Maybe... Uh, that might be a situation where you could add blood flow restriction and maybe see some positive changes. But I mean, uh, just just thinking out loud. But um, I think that's a great question. 
it does I think there comes a point where um the load gets low enough to where it, you might actually require blood flow restriction for it to even be effective. Yeah, yeah. And uh so would you say that that's basically the primary difference between blood flow restriction training and just simple high rep uh low load training to failure that you can just simply use even lighter loads? Yeah. And I think the the idea with behind both of them is we want to try and activate the whole muscle. So get high levels of muscle activation, right? Now, when you lift a high load, you're getting that by default because you require high activation to even move it probably a, a couple times, right? But with low loads, you have to work up to that. You have to fatigue those lower threshold motor neurons. So um, I, to, to recruit the higher threshold ones, right? So I think with blood flow restriction, you're just um, um, – causing an ex you're expediting those that recruitment so you can you know get to that high levels of motor unit activation so i think they're both trying to do the same thing i think that um and, and i think that's why when you apply blood flow restriction on top of a high load it doesn't do anything extra yeah yeah so um still uh one thing that i forgot to ask is uh let's talk about the cuffs a little bit so what kinds to use uh where to put them Let's start with the basics there. <laughs> um, so in the in the lab, we use pressurized cuffs, so we know what the pressure is. Um, but in the in the gym setting, you know, I'd probably recommend just using some cheap elastic knee wraps. Um, now the the size of the cuff, the size of the cuff, or the size of the wrap will matter. Um, meaning that the wider you the wider you wrap it, the more likely you are to cut off blood flow completely, which is not what we want at all. Um, so I would recommend, you know, in the upper body to use a narrow cuff. We usually use around three to five centimeters. Um, you can do the same thing with the wrap, um, with the lower body, anywhere between five and 10 centimeters is probably fine. Uh, but you, the place that you put them is at the top of your arm. So where it's covering the top of the bicep, not, not over your shoulder, but at the top of the arm covering the bicep, uh, or at the very top of the leg. Uh, those, that's really the only two places that I recommend applying blood flow restriction. Some people do recommend putting it above the knee if you're going to do calves, but I, I think that that's, I'm not saying that that's not effective, uh, but I, to me it's more of a safety risk because there's less tissue there, so there's more likely for you to cut off blood flow completely, um, which, which may augment the risk a little bit. So I, I just recommend putting it at the top of the leg. You're still going to get restriction to the lower limb. Um, but So, yeah, I, I think that top of the arm or top of the leg yeah actually is there some sort of a formula that you discovered of like because i i would assume that the thickness or the circumference of the limb is related to how wide it should be so is there some kind of a formula uh, of the relationship between the width width and the thickness of the limb yeah certainly so uh the bigger the limb so that you're you're I, you're completely correct the larger the limb the greater the pressure required um, and, and to be honest with you, we've shown this, uh, probably a thousand times, but it was, it's been shown in the surgical literature a long time ago. Um, but the bigger the limb is, the, the bigger the pressure, the smaller the limb, the, the lower the pressure, the bigger the cuff, the lower the pressure, the smaller the cuff, the, the bigger the pressure that you need. So, um, but the, the amount of restriction that, um, so the reason why that's important is because a lot of the literature is just applying the same pressure to every single person. 
And the reason why that's a problem is, as you just said, different limbs um, will restrict different amounts of blood flow. So if we apply, um, you know, 100 or 200 millimeters of mercury to a to a large person's limb, that's probably not that big of a deal. But if we apply it to a small limb, they may be under complete arterial occlusion. If that makes sense. Yeah. So we recommend making it relative to the to the to the person. Um, but but yes, the, the there are some formulas and. The, the the largest predictor <clears throat> always is limb circumference, meaning uh, bigger the limb, greater the pressure. Yeah. So and and with regards to the the width of the the cuff, because like obviously, or I mean, we didn't touch on this, but um, for people to know, like you would use a wider uh, cuff for your thighs than what you would use for your your biceps. So is there like some kind of formula, like I don't know, one fifth of the the circumference of your limb? is the width of the cuff or, or something like that that people could use to determine what's appropriate for them? So we've used 5 centimeter cuffs in the lower body um, and seen benefits. Um, I think 10 centimeter is a little bit better if you're trying to apply relative pressure uh, with the devices that we use. So I don't really recommend uh, using a formula if you can help it. Um, if you have the ability to know the pressure, then I would just inflate the cuff on the, the cuff that you're going to use for exercise onto the limb of which you're going to use it. And I'm, I would increase that pressure high, high enough to, uh, to completely stop blood flow, right? So you could tell that by just looking at the pulse. Yeah. So the lowest pressure that is would be termed arterial occlusion pressure. And that's how we do it in the lab. So we bring someone in, we put the cuff on the limb, the cuff that we're going to use, and we slowly increase the pressure until we find the lowest pressure of which there is no blood flow at all. And then that would be, let's just say that's 100 millimeters of mercury then we'll take a percentage of that. So usually 40%, right? Um, and that way we make sure that we are only restricting blood flow. We're staying way away from arterial occlusion. But I think that that's way better than using any formula because the formulas that we developed are only specific to the cuffs that we use. Um, so they don't, they don't, um, they're not appropriate for any other cuffs that are being used necessarily or any other cuff material. So I think it's, um, I think formulas are useful if you use those cuffs, but I think it's I think it's better to just measure the arterial occlusion pressure and then take a percentage of that. Right, right. So um, let's talk a little bit about because uh, I mean, obviously, progressive overload and and progressing from session to session is important. But like, how do you make sure? Or how would you make sure if you were just a general trainee who doesn't have you know pressurized you know very meticulously controlled cuffs? to make it consistent from se session to session, like the, the cuff that is, to make sure that that's not a variable that messes with the progression of your training. So if you're using knee wraps is what you're asking? Yeah, for example. Like, like we talked about earlier, you could just apply them. Um, it, you, if you have an idea of what your 1RM is, uh, then make sure that the it's, it's, a, it's appropriately set at 20 or 30% of your max. Um, I'd, I'd you know, wrap them at the top of the limb. Uh, if you're in pain, before you even start, then the wraps are way too tight. They don't, you don't need to be in severe pain, right? Before the, any, any discomfort that comes from that is going to be coming from the buildup metabolites that are being maintained inside the muscle for the most part. So I think if you're in pain before you start, you need the, uh, the wraps are too tight. But I think that again, if using the workload can kind of give you some indication. Um, but I, I think ultimately, 
what we, what we find when we measure blood flow is that there's a wide range of pressure where the blood flow uh, decrease is pretty much the same. So if you go a little bit tighter, the same amount of blood flow is actually being uh, probably uh, restricted, if that makes sense. Uh, and what we find is, is that if you go to a high pressure or you go to a low pressure, right? So 40% arterial occlusion versus 90%, the adaptation is pretty much the same. So you're, you're able to do a little bit less work at 90%, obviously, um, but <clears throat> the adaptation is the same. So I think that you have a window to where you can get that pressure. So maybe you don't get it exactly the same. I don't think it matters that much, uh, pragmatically. In the lab, it matters, but in, in, in real life, I think you can, as long as you're getting somewhere in between, you know, 40, 50% up to 90%, you're probably going to see a similar benefit, if that makes sense. So I think that you don't have to stress about, I don't have this exactly right. I don't have this, uh, this, it, this feels a little bit different than last time. Um, I think as long as you have it to where you're restricting uh, a moderate amount up to even a higher amount, you're probably going to get a similar benefit. Now, I think that when you get to a super high pressure that you increase the risk of something bad happening, not to, not to say that it would, but I think it, you elevate your risk. You have, you're increasing a risk factor. But I think as far as effectiveness, I think that it's, it's effective over a, a pretty wide range. Right. And, and speaking of risks, uh, would you take it off between sets or especially between exercises? Is there a maximum number of sets or maximum number of exercises you would do per session with BFR? We've, we've done it with about probably three or four exercises in a row before. That's obviously very intense. Um, we, I, we recommend that you leave it on the whole exercise bout, whether or not you take it, you know, so meaning after set one, don't deflate it. You leave it inflated until you finish set four. Uh, but I think that that would be something that you'd have to really uh, have some trial and error with, meaning that, of course, leave it on for the whole first exercise, but then if you're gonna do a second exercise, really depending on how you feel. Maybe it's something you um, you take the wraps off, you rest a little bit, and then you go do the second exercise. But eventually, you may work up to where you could just do two, both exercises back to back, if that makes sense. But I, I, I definitely think that um, continuous blood flow restriction is probably a little better, um, but certainly after you finish the first exercise, if you've never done it before, maybe take a break and then wrap it up again and do the second exercise if you want to. Um, and then maybe you can work to where you could maybe do two exercises in a row or three exercises in a row or whatever. So let's talk a little bit about progression. So how would you progress from session to session? Would you increase the load? Or would you increase reps or add more sets in? How, how would you do it? I think that, again, I, I think I would say I would use that 30, 15, 15, 15, right? So if you're getting all of those reps, I'd increase the load a little bit. Uh, and then uh, just have you keep, you know, basically go to failure, but use 30, 15, 15, 15 as kind of the, the repetition maximums, if that makes sense. So once you're able to do all four of those, you know, maybe in a, maybe a couple of days in a row, uh, maybe you increase the load, but I would definitely uh, uh, probably progress progress the load if I was going to progress anything. Um, you could do it with, rep with repetitions, which I, I guess you'd be doing. So let's say you do 30, 15, 12, and 9. Well, I would just keep progressing the reps until you got close to 30, 15, 15, 15, and then I'd progress the load. And then maybe you'd start that whole process over again, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes total sense. And... Um... 
uh, how would you how would you count the volume on this? So, because some people like to count reps per muscle group per week, some people like to count sets. So, for example, a thir- of 30, 15, 15, would that just simply be the equivalent of three heavier sets, or how would you count it? I I, I think the whole mass and volume thing is uh, so problematic that. Because I, I think that people are starting to, they, they get to where they're matching math. They're not matching the stimulus. So I think that if you match the volume, uh, if you take low loads without blood flow restriction, so we won't complicate it with blood flow restriction, and you work match it to a high load, right? Quite often, the stimulus is a little bit less. The high load's better, right? But if you, that, that's matching it mathematically. But if you go to failure, right, where you have to do more math, more volume, right, more kilograms lifted, then the stimulus is the same. So I, I think it's easier just to say um, four sets to failure um, with blood flow restriction versus three sets to failure with this or whatever. I did three sets to failure. That way you know that everyone's doing uh, kind of a similar stimulus, if that makes sense. Um, I know a lot of people like to match the, the math, and, and maybe that's fine, but I think that um, – I, th- I don't think it matches the stimulus quite as much as I think a lot of people think it does. Uh, I mean, feel free to disagree, but I, I just don't. I, I think there's so many situations where uh, the volume is so drastically different and, the, and, and some of the outcomes are the same. So I, I don't know what you're actually matching other than math, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And, and then what would you say to them? Because um, some people just... Uh kind of deem this technique to be free volume, which I, I would assume is not correct. So what, what would you say to this? Um, like how difficult it is to recover from a given volume of this as opposed to a given volume of higher load or just a high rep, uh, low load training without BFR? I think you can recover sometimes, oftentimes a little bit faster because you don't really have... Um, you typically don't have a, a lot of damage associated with this over just the exercise itself. So I, I think you hypothetically would have a better recovery, but I don't know that it's free volume. I mean, I think that, um, I think sometimes I don't know that people are actually getting a lot out of the blood flow restriction, to be honest, uh, only because they do like four exercises for that muscle group. And then they add on blood flow restriction for another exercise. You know, I think once you, I, I think there comes a point where you've, you've maximized the muscle's ability to respond anabolically. So all you're doing at this point is just delaying your recovery. So I, I think it would have to be um, uh, programmed intelligently if you're going to use that. I, I would replace something. I wouldn't just keep adding it on, if that makes sense, because um, I, I think there's a, a lot of overkill to where, you know, if, if that's what you like to do and that's what you enjoy in the gym, that's fine. I'm not here to tell people how to train, but I, I think if if your goal is to try and um, maximize your ability to to grow, I think all you're doing is del- when you add on a lot of extra things, is just delaying your ability to recover to where you can train again. Because you can only re- volume is definitely important to a point for growth, but it's only important to a point. And once you get past that point, you're just delaying recovery. Some people, but I just want to make it clear. I, some people like that. Some people, they, they need that feeling of just being absolutely destroyed, right? Um, is that is that the the best? Probably not. But if that's what they like to do, then do that. I, I don't really I don't really care, uh, to be honest. But I, I think that 
Um, some people, that's what they enjoy doing. That's fine. But, that's, but we're, we're, I just want to make sure that we're clear. Uh, I'm not telling people not to do that. I'm just saying that it's probably not the best. So with regards to, I mean, I guess that's somewhat related, but what do you, what do you think are the implications are for training frequency? So if someone is using exclusively BFR training for a given muscle group, like quads or, or biceps, um, how frequent, like, do you think they can hit it more frequently? Usually the recommendation is two to three times per, mu- per muscle group. Um, what do you think? Do you, do you think you can do, I don't know, more, less? How would, how do you think it would change? Um, I think you might be able to do a little bit more just because you're, um, if, if that's all you're doing, because you can usually recover a little bit better, um, a little bit faster, depending on, uh, I mean, especially if that's all you were doing. Um, I do think that the frequency thing is interesting. Um, and, uh, that maybe you can, maybe that's, uh, something that people can tap into to squeeze a little bit more muscle growth. And, and I would emphasize that it's, it's probably, if it's any, it's, it'd be a little bit more, but I do think that not, 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 it's not going to change your life increasing the frequency. Uh, but I do think that this is perhaps an, uh, something that's becoming a little bit more interesting to people. And I think that, I think it's something that's maybe a little bit less untapped. Uh, because I think a lot of people have been focusing on volume within a session versus frequency over a week. So I think that um, if you tie it into what I was just talking about, how you can the muscle can only uh, uh, respond to so much volume within a session, and then all you're doing is delaying recovery. If you do blood flow restriction, you do four sets, or you do another couple exercises, you probably match the volume, maximize the volume for growth. I would just leave the gym, and then maybe you can uh, add another session. Or, and then add another session because it's, you can only add so much volume within a session before it's not doing anything. Um, but maybe you can add some sessions in the week to where you can get increase the number of maximal stimulations, if that makes sense. Now, whether or not that's really going to do a whole lot, um, I, I don't know. I, I can't imagine that it would drastically change your muscle size, but it could help a little bit to a point, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and and um, one thing that I, uh, I I forgot to ask is um, when it comes to progression, I guess um, how would you how would you periodize it in? So if someone is using a combination of BFR and normal training in their in their program for 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 a given muscle group, would you put BFR on a training session after a day of heavy load? or before like would that make any kind of practical difference or which one would you prefer yeah i think that um i'd probably put it after after your high load training so you're, you're going to be pretty fatigued um so i would put it after or maybe you give it its own day i think you could do either or um and but yeah if i was going to do heavy squats that day i'd probably do my heavy squats and then maybe follow it up with maybe blood flow restriction, leg extensions, or leg curls. If that's what you, if you wanted to implement blood flow restriction, um, and then then I would go home personally, um, and maybe try uh, train again the next day. But I wouldn't do the the leg extensions and leg curls of blood flow restriction before I did my heavy squat, um, mostly because I, I'd want to try and get the highest quality out of my squat, and I wouldn't want to be fatigued. Um, on a heavy squat because I feel like that's when you might increase your risk for something terrible happening if that makes sense yeah yeah absolutely and um, just just one thing that I'm just personally curious about is what do you think about myo reps if you've heard about it or 
rest pause training, I guess, is what it's most com- more commonly known for. Um, what, what do you think about those techniques? I'm not, I'm not that familiar with them, um, to be honest. Myo reps, I don't know what that is. It's intended to mimic blood flow restriction without actually occluding your body parts. And the, what you do is you do a higher rep set and then rest only like three or f- five seconds between the next set. And then you do like three to five reps. Basically, the idea is that you acquire maximal muscle activation with that higher rep set. And then you keep that with doing those lower rep sets afterwards. And you do that for as long as you can while only resting about like three to five seconds between two sets. So if I had to, if I, if I designed a study and I was looking at muscle growth and I did myo reps, that's what they're called, blood flow restriction, um, and then high load exercise. Um, and let's say the myo reps were, what, 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 what percentage of load do they use? 30%? Yeah, I think I think about that or or some somewhat higher. So I think be- generally between 15 to 30 reps is what you do on that first set. Yeah, no, I would I would anticipate them all producing a similar change in muscle size. So yeah, I mean, if that's what people like to do, I think the I wouldn't anticipate one being better than any of the others, to be honest. I feel like they'd all probably I think if the person, if the individual had the capacity to grow, that they would all grow to a similar extent because they'd all be hypothetically maximizing uh, muscle activation, right? So, yeah. yeah, I wouldn't expect them to be that different. Now, the one thing that's we talked about um, a little bit um, earlier was the, the utility of this in rehabilitation, meaning that, there again, there's some data that suggests that just applying the cuff, independent of contractions, so just causing that venous pulling may slow down muscle loss as well as strength. Um, so I, I do think there might be something – unique about pulling blood flow, uh, but we need a lot more data. So I'm not ready to say that uh, blood flow, that you don't need anything else uh, or or that uh, blood flow restriction is completely obsolete. Um, I do think that with resistance exercise, I think that, um, you know, it's, there's a lot of different ways to maximize growth. Blood flow restriction is one of them, but I wouldn't say there's anything entirely special about it. Um, I think they're all trying to augment muscle activation, but I do think there might be something unique about applying it independent of contraction. Or if you're getting to a load where you're not impeding, you're not impeding blood flow with the contraction, as we talked about with maybe slow walking, cycling, or, you know, 15% of your, your max or something like that. But I think if we had to compare the mile reps, um, low load training, uh, with blood flow restriction and high load training, I think I'd all, I think it all produced similar muscle growth. And that's why I keep saying, um, does this make sense? Is because I'm just trying to make sure that it makes sense because, uh, every time I, I do one of these, it's as if, uh, nothing I say ever makes sense because it's like, especially with the muscle size and strength thing, um, it's like they, they can, it's completely taken out of context always. So I always try to just verify that it actually makes sense. No, no, I appreciate it. And uh, what what do you think about uh, some some crazy person asked, but there's there's more than enough of them in my audience, and I'm one of those as well. So, what would you think of someone occluding a body part at two ends, so like biceps, on you know below the shoulder and near the elbow? Uh, would that be very dangerous? Would that be potentially effective? What do you think? <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's that's pretty interesting because it'd be pulling all of it in a localized area. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I haven't thought about that at all, to be honest. That's 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 pretty interesting, though. Yeah, I think that one thing that could happen is, um, depending on the size of the cuff that you're using, um, one of the things that has been suggested by some um, is that the the muscle does not grow quite as well underneath the cuff. And that's a lot of times why I recommend a narrow cuff, because you cover less of the tissue. Um, but there's been a few investigations that suggest that directly underneath the cuff, it, it may grow a little bit, but not as much as compared to what's distal. So I, I think you could run the risk of covering too much tissue and really and, and kind of limiting your growth a little bit. Um, but <laughs> I don't know what would happen. I think that's I think that's an interesting concept, though. I don't think that's crazy at all. I think that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, you know, every, everybody for their own responsibility experiment with this and then report what happens and maybe it will be interesting to see. <laughs> so, a couple of kind of theoretical questions to the end. Um what do you how do you think uh, muscle damage plays into this whole thing? So, um someone cited a study which did observe uh, muscle damage with BFR technique with very low loads do you think it's just a dose response kind of relationship with the load that you're using and basically the more load you use the more muscle damage there will be or what do you think about this uh what was the study the sarcolemma one it was by c c some i think it's from sweden or the netherlands maybe it's a 2016 study i think yeah i don't recall the them really i i, I saw that they saw the you know heat shock proteins and some of these proteins localize uh, to some of these tissues, but I don't know that they actually saw damage of the myofiber itself. Um, but I'm not. To, it's not to say that muscle damage cannot occur. But I, I think that uh, we've looked at this indirectly. You know, looking at you know whether or not this is the best thing to use or not. Uh, but um, a lot of people would recommend that indirectly that the torque production. <clears throat> meaning your ability to, to produce maximal torque or maximal force is the best indirect marker of damage. And when we've looked at this, we've never, we've never seen it. Um, we've looked at this in some very, very, very untrained people. Um, so I don't want to say that it, it can't happen, but uh, I, I am familiar with one of the papers from that groups where they did say that there was sarcolemma damage, etc. But if you look at their force data, it's not that different from the group that didn't, that was just work matched. Um, so I don't know that they saw a lot of damage, in my opinion. Um, but again, could it happen? Absolutely. Um, damage can always happen. I think sometimes um, if you got the load a little bit too high, um, then yeah, maybe damage could occur. But at 20 or 30% of your 1RM, uh, we don't notice a whole lot of damage. We notice soreness. But we don't notice a lot of effect on torque. So basically, force production is back to baseline by the next day. And we've seen this probably, you know, three or four times. Yeah, and, and I guess it would also depend on the, the cadence with which you're lifting. So if you do slow eccentrics with those loads even, then maybe the muscle damage would be higher, I, I would just assume. Yeah, I think uh, perhaps, I don't know. I think it's, the lengthening contraction is where we typically see it, um, if you're going to see it. But um, again, I think if damage is occurring it's pretty small with blood flow restriction at a low load that is so another kind of theoretical question here is do you think that blood flow restriction causes 
more hypertrophy preferentially in type 2 or type 1 muscle fibers or is it equally effective for both? Do you think it's more effective for type 1 muscle fibers than heavy lifting? Um, yeah, any, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that I think the same group that we just talked about, they actually showed, they did a high-frequency study where they looked at blood flow restriction in a minute, saw increases in type 1 and type 2 fibers. So I think, it, I think it's going to affect both. Um, now, I think relative to high-load exercise, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's an interesting idea. Uh, one of my students talks about it quite a bit. Um, I think Brad Schoenfeld has also discussed this. Um, that may be, you know, including a wide range of um, rep ranges may help maximize type one relative to high load exercise. And, and I think there might be some evidence, um, at least that would lead to that hypothesis. But I don't really know, to be honest, because there's, there's also studies that show just doing high load exercise also increases type one fiber size. Um, so um, to answer the question, it does increase both type one and type two fibers. How would that relate to high load exercise? Um, I don't really have a good feel for it. I, I think there's there's some studies that suggest that type two uh, more preferentially grow with high load exercise relative to type one, but I don't know that that's universal. Right, right. Um, and and I, and the last question here, which uh, I didn't really know where to place this, but it's interesting. And feel free to say if you if you haven't looked at this at all, uh, but nevertheless, it's interesting. What do you think its applications are for carb depletion or glycogen depletion? Uh, and any thoughts on this whatsoever? I'm not sure what the what, what my thoughts are. Blood flow restriction on carb depletion. Yeah, yeah, basically like depleting glycogen, which you know typically high rep training is used for that. Oh, uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, that, that that's actually an interesting question as well um, that I hadn't really ever thought about ever in my life. <laughs> um, I think that it's interesting. Some of these older papers they would they would use kind of muscle glycogen depletion as kind of an index. So if it was if it was depleted out of the type two fibers, they would use that as kind of a, a rough index of uh, recruitment. Um, so, man, yeah, I don't know. I think some of the I think some of the papers from uh, the that Norway group they've looked at some of the glycogen depletion uh, in some of these fibers as well. Um, but I don't I don't have a good feel for that that literature to be honest. Um, so. Out of not giving the wrong answer, I'll just not give one. Uh, but that's an interesting question. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fair enough. Yeah, I, I, I have no idea what it would do. Um, but uh, yeah, nevertheless, may, maybe someone in the future will look into this. Dr. Jeremy, I think I basically asked you all my questions. Uh, is there something that you think I definitely should have asked you and I didn't? Um, not really. I, I think that... Um, I think there were some good questions. I think the, we, we briefly touched on the muscle size and strength thing, which I'm sure hopefully made sense to some people. Um, I think that just to reiterate, what we're discussing here is the exercise-induced change in muscle size. So the reason why the, the, a lot of these studies can be used as direct evidence is because what they look at, what they do, is they'll, they'll use a training program designed to maximize muscle growth. And then they'll correlate the change in muscle growth with, with the change in strength. And oftentimes it's, it's pretty low, but oftentimes it's, um, it's not always. But just because those two are correlated, I don't know why that would be a cause and effect. 
because you would expect that a, a program designed to maximize muscle growth would also, you know, they would also get better at lifting weights, which is what strength is. So it, it's no surprise to me that those two are correlated. And to be honest with you, our, our research group has actually shown the highest correlation, the highest variance explained in the literature. Um, we explained that. So the meaning that I think 38, 39% of the variance explained in muscle strength was the muscle size, but that, that, but you can't get cause and effect from that. In order to, to really do that, to really, to answer that question, you need a, a group where you completely eliminate growth and then see what happens. Uh, or you maximize growth in one condition and minimize strength in one. So we've done these studies and they all hint that this idea that maybe, uh, this exercise induced muscle size is not meaningful enough to actually contribute to the strength gain. Um, and I don't know of any direct evidence that shows that the exercise induced change in muscle size in an adult human being is contributing to strength, if that makes sense. And I think that there's, we, we talk a lot about um, some of these examples all the time. So I'll, I'll just go ahead and go through them briefly if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, please. So <clears throat> the, the first thing that uh, really kind of got us thinking about this is when you look at the low-load blood flow-restricted exercise, the muscle growth is almost always the same. When you look at a strength test that none of them perform, uh, meaning like an MDC, uh, dynamometry, they're almost always the same. If you look at the 1RM, they're oftentimes lower. So the muscle size is the same. The strength in the test that they were doing is lower, right? If the muscle growth is there, but it's not contributing to strength in that test, what's it doing, right? So uh, the next study we did where we had one arm just do 1RMs. We had the other group just do 1RMs in volume. And the reason why we did this study, uh, there was a very interesting study from Dr. Zordos um, that I was fortunate enough to, to help out on, at least on the write-up, uh, where they did daily 1RM squatting for like 37 days. So they did a 1RM and then followed by volume, right? They did this every single day, and they, they increased their strength substantially in people who are already very strong, right? Now, my question was, I wonder – was the volume really driving that strength increase or was it simply just doing the 1RM test? So to answer that question, we used the within person, um, very simple design. And the, so meaning that you, you take out all the skill uh, or a lot of the skill and you use a very simple model of bicep curl. So uh, the, we had one arm do a 1RM followed by volume and the other group just was a control 1RM. They just did a daily 1RM. Um, and we actually hypothesized that the group doing the volume would increase muscle size and increase strength more than the other arm, more than the other arm. But that was not the case. Basically, at the end of the study, muscle growth was the same. Or no, sorry. Muscle growth occurred in the arm that did volume, but the strength was not greater than the other condition that just did the 1RM test, which suggested that the muscle size uh, increased, but it wasn't contributing to strength. Now, as, as many people rightfully brought up, this, is a, this was a small study, um, and it was, there's a potential for the, ner the, neural the, the neural crossover when you do a strength test in the same person. Now, I, still th I think that crossover is actually um, an argument against muscle size contributing because you'd have to argue that the, the, there was a complete transfer of strength to the other arm, but that the, even though muscle growth didn't occur. Um, so we followed that up. 
uh, with a study where we maximized growth in both arms but minimized strength. So one arm saw the same amount of muscle growth as the other arm, but the strength was different. Um, and then we recently did um, a between-group design where we eliminated growth in one group, uh, maximized growth in another group, uh, and the strength was statistically equivalent at the end, right? So in order for people to believe that, they'd have to believe that the muscle growth was there. It was just choosing not to work. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, yeah. And then if you look at the uh, – my last point would just be the detrain studies. So there's a, there's a, a several good studies. One of the ones that we always talk about is where you where people were trained for six months. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe it wasn't six months. It was like, I think, 16 weeks. Uh, and they saw an increase in muscle size, and they saw an increase in strength. And then they detrained them, but they did a 1RM test once a month. Now, they, did, they detrained them for six months. So what they saw was, at the end, all the muscle size was back to baseline, right? But the strength was basically maintained where it was at the end of training. So if muscle growth was so important for that increase in strength, how did a complete loss of muscle growth that you gained from training not, not, not meaningfully impact the strength at all. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So I'm not arguing that they aren't correlated. I, 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 I agree that they're correlated. We've shown the highest correlation in the literature. But what I'm suggesting is, is that there's little direct evidence, if at all, that the exercise-induced change in one uh, meaningfully contributes to the exercise-induced change in the other. And there will be people who will cite this letter that we, we wrote a letter about um, one of those regression formulas. Um, and um, they wrote back, and their title of their paper was Debunking This Idea. But I, I just want to caution people. And, and, and again, we might very well be wrong. I would be shocked at this point. But just because someone says they debunked you, that doesn't mean that you got debunked. You actually have to have data for that. And I think that this is a question that cannot be answered by math, right? It cannot be answered by retrospective correlations. It absolutely needs to be answered through study design, which is what we are attempting to do. Okay, so that's that's all there is to it. I'm not I'm not denying that the correlation exists, especially when people are are trying to maximize growth. What I'm interested in is does that change in one affect the change in the other? Maybe at some point we could set up like a roundtable debate of sorts. It could be between you and uh, Greg Knuckles and a couple of people. It would be super interesting. <laughs> yeah, I know we've been trying to set that up for about a year and a half. So if you can make that happen, that would be lovely. Oh, yeah, man, that would uh, that, that would be super, super awesome. Yeah, I mean, I just saw, you know, an, a really long article. I don't know if you've seen that where he was trying to um, discern the correlation or the kind of causative relationship between hypertrophy and strength gains. And he was basically describing all these how pination angles that change within the muscle changes its force production ability. And there he basically concluded that for trained advanced individuals, once uh, muscle cross-sectional area grows, then it can explain a very significant portion in force production ability. Basically, that's what I understood. I don't know if you've seen that article. No question. No question when you run retrospective correlations, you're going to find variance explained. No question. But that's not what people are actually interested in. People are interested in what happens when I lift weights. When things change, is one change affecting the other change? That's what people are interested in. 
And you have to do that through study design, not through, not through mathematics. It has to be done through study design. And I, I feel like uh, that's, that's my opinion, at least. You, you can't, I don't think you can train people. I don't think you can take a group of people, right, and then train them for, for eight weeks and then, and then go, okay, strength, let's correlate this with this. Okay, that, that explains that much variance, right? So, therefore, that's important for changing strength. You have to manipulate variables. That, that has to happen through study design. Sometimes you can't do it. But this is a question that can be answered through study design. Right, right. And, and, and just to reiterate, um, I mean, I guess I could just listen back, but, but you said that you did have a study design in which significant hypertrophy occurred and not as much strength occurred as what would be uh, predicted. Well, we, yeah, we, this paper recently came out. Um, you know, the, the, the muscle growth was, was not nearly as robust as we saw uh, in the upper body when we did the bicep curl. Uh, but they did traditional exercise, the, what the ACSM recommendations that we did the chest press, we did the leg extension. Um, and those movements are chosen because they're low skill movements. So if you're going to see a contribution of muscle growth, it's going to be in those movements. Um, the, the more complex the skill gets, I think the less muscle mass is going to contribute. Um, because you're going to be learning skills. But what we showed was is that there was some growth in the traditional exercise group, as you might imagine. Uh, but the strength was statistically equivalent to a group that was just doing a 1RM. So the volume discrepancy was astronomical, but the change in strength was the same um, statistically. So um, to, to me, it, it's that's that that, that study does not um, that study does not end the conversation at all. I don't want, I'm not trying to to convey that, but it it just keeps it's it's one more piece of evidence questioning this relationship between the change in size and the change in strength. Because I think that a lot of people will go, well, that's an eight-week study. Well, the, the correlation in which we saw uh, previously was an eight-week study. And, the, I, and this whole idea that, <clears throat> not the whole idea, but the paper that made it very popular is more and DeVries. So this is the paper that people always cite when it goes, what happens is you have neural gains first followed by hypertrophy. And that's a very, very nice idea. But the, to, let's, but again, that study was eight weeks in duration, right? Which not, is not a limitation to me. But what the study was is one arm exercised, the other arm did not, right? So the arm that exercised, they saw a change in arm circumference. So, and they saw a change in strength. So what they suggested was initially, what happens is you have a neural change and then because arm circumference changed, right, then that must mean muscle mass change, which means it must be contributing. Yeah. I, I hope that people can see that that's not strong evidence. Just because arm circumference changed, that means muscle mass is now contributing strength. So they came out of the paper one year later where they looked at old people versus young people. And they saw that in the old people, arm circumference didn't change. Therefore, their strength is, is, is explained entirely by neural. Now, I think that we have plenty of evidence that suggests that muscle growth changes in older people, right? So this original model, I think, has it was interesting, and I, I think it's valuable, but to say that that's strong evidence that, that for this neural first and followed by hypertrophy, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, no, that, yeah, that's interesting because that's what I've always heard as well. Like, yeah, initially neural adaptations and then all the strength is basically 
uh, has to be explained by hypertrophy, and that's why that's why it's it's good to aim for progressive overload because if you get stronger, you can be assured that that's hypertrophy. So when we do an eight week study, right, and one group doesn't see muscle growth at all, more tiny and degrees would suggest that by eight weeks, the majority of the of that change in strength is going to be contributing from hypertrophy, but the strength was the same as a group that saw growth, right? So I, I just think that there's we need to be looking at this a little bit closer. I'm not saying that the, the book is closed. I'm not saying that. I'm not, um, but I, the discussion um, um, needs to be had that there's something wrong about this original model. There's no evidence for it. There, there's no direct evidence that this muscle growth is really affecting strength in an adult lifting weights, right? That's what we're talking about. Adults lifting weights. That's it. So, um, that's my take, at least. Yeah. Are, are you planning on doing any kind of uh, study to further examine this? Um, <clears throat> absolutely. Um, there'll be some things going on in the next few years. Um, we're not immediately going to uh, address this. We have some other things that we have to take care of. But, yeah, hopefully we can start looking at this a little bit more. Um, but I think that, I mean, we put, you know, I guess maybe three or so papers out related to this. Um, and with the existing literature, I think you can make a case that if it's affecting it, it's not very much at all. Um, now, what, the, the follow-up question that you asked me earlier is, well, what if it's what, what is what is affecting strength? Good question. I don't know. Um, I think the the obvious answer would be the nervous system, but I think I think that's a mistake too. Um, to just say, well, it's not muscle size; it must be the nervous system. Uh, it could be at the muscle level, just not resulting in changes in, in, in growth. But um, I think it's an interesting conversation that um, I think for a long time we we just assume things about muscle growth that can't necessarily be said with the existing data. Yeah, but no, it's it's really cool. Like alongside with this, the whole uh, you know muscle damage component to hypertrophy. If that was examined further as well, it would it would be super cool as well. Because because like you said. Um, if we find out more about what actually causes muscle growth and then what causes strength gain, then we can optimize our training further that way. Um, so yeah, it's, it's super exciting. All right, uh, Dr. Lenneke, thank you so much for uh, dropping all these uh, knowledge bombs here. Uh, just tell people maybe where they can find you and what you're up to, any resources you'd like to mention, anything like that. Um, yeah, <clears throat> you can... I'm most interactive on Twitter um, at J-P-L-O-E-N-N-E-K-E. -E. Um, I'm at the University of Mississippi, so if you're thinking about graduate school in the future, uh, maybe uh, give us a look. I think it's uh, I think we have a really good program that we're developing here. Um, and I also like to think uh, my I have my uh, PhD students. Um, I think I'm very, I've been very, very, very lucky here at the University of Mississippi and working with the students in my lab. Um, I think that it must be said that um, a lot of these ideas come from the discussions that we've had. So these aren't, I don't want, you know, I think a, a lot of times, I think people can get the impression that I'm really just doing all of this by myself, and that's not even remotely true. Um, I would be largely uh, lost in doing, and you know, I, I would be not doing nearly the stuff I'm, I'd be able to do without them. So I've been lucky to work with people who are uh, critically thinking, who can work very, very hard, and they work every day. Um, so um, give a shout out to them um, because um, I'm very fortunate 
to have them. But that's, but so that's it. All right, guys, Abel here again. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe on YouTube if you watched it there. I come out with new content every week there, whether it's in the form of a podcast episode like this, which I actually aim to do one off every week, or some shorter informational video. Also, if you could just leave a comment and suggest some people that you'd like me to interview or just topics you'd like me to cover, uh, it would be very helpful to know how I can better serve you. And if you listen to it in podcast, format if you could leave a rating on itunes it would greatly help out the show and i would be more than grateful for it so thanks guys for hanging out up until now thanks for being here and see you all next week